and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Ash Fontana, Managing Director at Zeta Venture Partners. Ash believes we're squarely in the fourth era of computing, the intelligence era. In this era, data aggregation is less interesting than matching data sets to tactical problems. And with good reason, the intelligence era is an inflection point. Traditional IT infrastructure will change to enable the development of self-learning software, and previously data-starved markets will benefit from the information generated by self-learning software. It was fun to dive deep into all things AI with Ash in this conversation. He's one of the most nuanced and thoughtful voices in AI today. Welcome, Ash, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ramin. Thanks for having me. So, Ash, you know, really excited to have you on the show today and dive you know, pretty deeply into AI and your perspective on building and scaling an AI-first company. But, you know, before that, tell us a little bit more about your background, your time at AngelList, and what you're focused on now at Zeta. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I got interested in two seemingly unrelated things as a kid, and they were pulling apart computers and pulling apart companies. And that led me down uh, two very different paths. So I started a few small web-based businesses when I was a teenager. Uh, and then I also got interested in investing. And I went back and forth for a while. Um, I did a trip to law school to understand how deals get done. I started a few more companies. I wrote up investment research for big banks and advised companies on acquisitions and whatnot um, and worked on a lot of side projects. And eventually I found a really good hybrid, which was AngelList, um, which is a hybrid between, I guess, working on products and investing. And what we were doing there, we're building investment products, of course. So I worked with a fantastic team to launch the fundraising platform. So that's the online investing that happens through syndicates. And that's now managing billions of dollars of investments. Um, I had a great couple of years there, but ultimately I realized the craft I wanted to hone for the rest of my life is investing. And I'd been doing that for 15 years on and off, but after honing that craft in a few different ways, you know, whether it was investing in stocks or advising other companies or early stage stuff at AngelList, um, I realized my style is sort of quite analytical um, and not of the trading sort of variety. Um, I'm much more of a long-term person, not a short-term, and I'm very relationship-based and not not particularly transactional. So um, I, I thought that the best sort of way to hone my craft would be at a in private in the private market and more specifically in venture. Um, because I'd worked on so many different technologies. So that's what I decided to do. And then met a lot of people, but um, really had a mind meld with my partner, Mark, when I met him. And uh, we sort of got Zeta off the ground together. And I can go into what we do, but I had worked on some big data products very early in what people were calling the big data era, which is 10 years ago now, um, and realized that that was sort of the future of software. So that's what we started Zeta around. Yeah, and it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting kind of premise to revolve around, and, and I want to talk about it a little bit more. It's it's mm. no secret, you know, AI is obviously having an incredible impact on our daily lives and, and the business world by extension. And I think you guys are you guys are specifically interesting because you're really an AI focused fund, mm-hmm. and I think that that's kind of like innovation. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It does um, so when you fundamentally think about you know AI mm-hmm. and how it'll change the world. How do you frame it, especially because, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions and noise about AI and its yeah. potential impact? Yeah, I just think about it as another lever, right? And any lever um, allows us to uh, fully express our humanity. Um, and so I, I think what I mean by that is I think, you know, we as humans should be doing only what humans can do. Um, you know, we also have to survive, so we can't just play all the time. Um, so what I th- how I think of AI is we can use it to give us enough leverage in producing what we need to survive, energy, food, transport, uh, trading with each other, such that we don't need to spend much time on you know, basic survival stuff and garnering resources. And that means we can spend more time on creating and cl- collaborating and doing things that humans can do. So I just think of it as another lever like any technology. Um, and this means something different for different people. You know, a sculptor may want to spend less time machining and more time drawing, and AI can help you do that. A CFO may want to spend less time reconciling accounts and more time making predictions that allow them to set strategies, and AI can, is you know good at helping them do that. Um, a manufacturing plant operator may want to spend less time dealing with 
error messages and all sorts of that sort of annoying stuff and more time inventing a new process that increases yield, being creative. Um, a retailer may want to spend less time walking around doing stock takes and more time connecting with their customers. Um, and AI can help you automate a whole bunch of stuff uh, that allows you to focus on the stuff that you as only a human can do. So that's how I think about it. And you have a pretty concrete framework for how you think about uh, AI adoption, right? Over, I think, about four, mm. uh, four stages or so. So talk, about, talk a little bit more about that framework, you know, where we are and, and where you see the most impact occurring you know, going forward. Yeah. Um, so we sort of came, we thought about the adoption of AI over time. And um, we noticed that as it gets better, uh, people are willing to adopt it for more perceivably risky applications. And so when you think about the very first applications of AI in the consumer era, this was you know, 10 years ago now, um, they were pretty low risk. There were things like using uh, machine learning to make predictions about what Netflix movie you might want to watch next or what search results should appear where in a list um, or what Amazon product you should buy next. And they're the sort of things that have sort of a very com convex payoff as in if you get that recommendation wrong, it's sort of funny. If you get it right, then, you know, someone might buy something. Um, so that was the first sort of use of AI, I think. Um, the second phase was when we started sprinkling AI into enterprise applications. So obviously moving from consumer to enterprise is a bit more risky um, because you're using it to make a business decision that may have different financial consequences. But And so the first applications of AI in the enterprise world were pretty light, as in it was things like um, inside sales, which is a CRM, the first investor in the company. And it's like a CRM, it suggests to salespeople who they should call next. So going beyond the typical CRM, which is sort of just like a database of your contacts you want to call, and starts making suggestions. And that's a pretty low-risk application um, because if it suggests someone for you to call that you know doesn't convert, that's okay. You've only wasted a couple of minutes. Um, but if it suggests someone for you to call that does convert, then you've made an extra sale. So it's sort of, again, fairly convex, all upside. And so that was the second era of adoption. We call them sort of AI-enhanced applications. As AI got better and better, and this is when, you know, around the time that AI started becoming very good at do doing things like perceiving what's in an image or um, constructing segments of text or understanding segments of text, around sort of 2013, 2014, 2015, we started seeing the, uh, the adoption of AI-centric applications. So these, this is the third era, we call it. Um, and these are applications where if the AI doesn't work, the product is sort of useless. So something like um, recognizing which products are on the shelf in a grocery store using computer vision so that you can know what's out of stock and then replace that or replenish that, replace that stock or replenish that shelf. Um, and so here, if the AI works, uh, it's automating a huge amount of labor and reducing your costs by quite a lot. Um, but if it doesn't work, then the product's sort of useless. So that's why we call it sort of an AI-centric application. Um, and people are starting to adopt those now because AI is getting good enough to do that. The final era uh, of AI adoption and the sort of fourth part of our risk curve is what we call AI-enabled applications. So these are instances where the AI is doing something a human's never been able to do. Um, so understanding something in a complex system like an energy grid or a biological system like the human body or something like that. And it's combining so many different variables and computing over them uh, to a degree that a human could never do. And you know, as AI gets really good or even ensembles of different AIs, um, so different types of models all working in and around the same problem and competing against each other and things like that, then it, it starts being able to solve these sorts of problems that we've never been able to solve. And we start trusting it to do that. So the point is, as AI gets better and better, we're sort of letting it um, do more and more in our software applications. Uh, and this sort of conception of risk and over time I think is really important to have as a buyer of products. You know, if you're responsible for buying software for a big company, it's important to have this conception of risk because you don't want to adopt software that's going to um, make a mistake. Uh, and also as an investor, because you don't want to invest in something the market's just not ready to adopt or people just aren't confident in. 
And so it's it's interesting the way you you framed it and laid it out because I think uh, on the on the kind of third leg of that stool, not as a buyer, not an investor, but as a as a maker, as a founder, mm. as you as you kind of make the shift between stages, the future for the basis of competitive advantage shifts. Right? Mm. And so over the last yeah. ten years, you know, workflows were incredibly powerful. We we kind of saw a commensurate rise in SaaS and SaaS valuations. And you actually, you have a pretty interesting perspective on how the value of SaaS will continue to erode. And I think it actually fits pretty cleanly in the way you describe the different stages of adoption. So talk, mm. talk about kind of that example a little bit more in the lens of, of AI adoption. Yeah. Um, so this is the thing, you know, with each era uh, of sort of adoption of AI, the software is just able to do more. It's able to make predictions. And you know, here's how I think about SaaS. Um, SaaS, you know, a SaaS product, a vertical, you call it vertical market software. If you're Constellation, you call it vertical SaaS, you just call it SaaS. It's most often mapping a workflow. So take a real world workflow, figure out what, what it's trying to do um, and like a, or a business process or whatever else. And mapping those workflows is most often a fairly tractable business process problem. And then once you've mapped that workflow out on a piece of paper, Encoding that into software is a pretty tractable engineering problem these days. Um, and then, and so I think, you know, if a problem is eminently tractable to a sufficiently large number of people, like, you know, ambitious entrepreneurs out there, and the solution to solving that problem is obvious, i.e. you make some money by selling software, then someone will solve it. And I think that's where SaaS is today. I think a lot of people understand that software can uh, automate a lot of business processes or, or, or at least sort of, um, you know, make a lot of business processes easier. And a lot of people are just systematically going after vertical markets and doing that with software that they're building in three to six months. Um, you know, and abstracting this up to the investor level, understanding these SaaS businesses is also eminently tractable. You know, there are endless blog posts about different metrics you can use to understand um, these SaaS products. And so I, I don't really want to be investing in stuff that's... Um, eminently tractable or understandable by lots of people. Um, and what's not eminently tractable to many investors today are things like valuing data, measuring the efficacy of machine learning systems, understanding the value of certain predictions to customers and so on. So I, as an investor, I'm trying to understand those things better than other investors so that I can price the risk of them happening better than other people. Um, and that's sort of bringing it all down to wh where I'm at, you know, if, I, you make money as an investor by pricing a risk that no one else can price and by pricing it better than anyone else or pricing it better than anyone else. And I think that, um, you know, the adoption of SaaS and is, is a pretty easy thing to understand these days. And so therefore a lot of people can do it. And so un unpack kind of where the puck is going a, a little bit mm -hmm. more, right? One of the most popular analogies in the business world is this idea that data is the new oil. And, mm -hmm. and you guys actually have a pretty interesting perspective on how that analogy is you know, mm. incorrect or, or at least incomplete. Say more a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, um, I think incomplete is a really uh, good nuanced way to describe that. Uh, you know, I think the reaction we had there is a lot of people just think that accumulating lots of data is, is good and valuable. Um, but, you know, not all data is equal, right? It's just like and at one level up, not all information is useful. Um, so what we do when we look at businesses, um, and again, this goes back to what we were saying in the last question, which is, you know, the analytical methods we're trying to invent that allow us to price different sorts of risks of adoption of technologies and um, value, value businesses differently uh, are around, you know, how do you figure out what data is worth what? And so we look at things um, like the effect of the data in making predictions. So... Um, if you're trying to make a prediction about something, you know, you're trying to recognize something in an image or you're trying to um, sort of automate the, um, the recognition of, a, of an error on a manufacturing line, how many, how accurate do you need to be? You know, is it, is it the case that at the moment humans recognize something in an image 80% of the time or do humans recognize it 90% of the time fairly reliably? And whatever that number is, that's your threshold. And we call that the minimum algorithmic performance. And so then you ask, how much data do we need to get to that level of accuracy? And a lot of these machine learning systems need to see 
a whole bunch of samples before they can then independently recognize any given sample at a level of accuracy that's equivalent to a human or whatever your benchmark is, 80, 90%. And so the first thing we look at when we look at the value of data is, well, how much of this data is required to get to the minimum algorithmic performance um, we call, or the map? Um, the next thing uh, we look at is, um, it's a nuanced thing, which is the performance threshold. So um, it's not just, you know, what threshold do we need to get to, but how many data points do we need? So we find in a lot of situations, you don't actually need that much data you know, to get to this minimum algorithmic performance. You might need 100 samples or 200. And if that's the case, well, you know, someone can probably come along and get 100 samples from another customer and catch up to you really quickly. If you need a million samples and those samples are hard to get and whatever else, then the data you have, and you have those million samples, that's really valuable data. Um, so we look at the the amount of samples you need and then compare that to how many a company has. Um, and then we look at things like um, the stability of the model and then how that affects what sort of data you need to collect over time. So a lot of these models, because they're probabilistic in nature, they change over time. So you feed them different types of data and eventually they start sort of um, making predictions that map to what they've been fed and they call this like an overfitting problem. Um, well, they can just do all sorts of random things, these models. And we've seen all sorts of funny examples of this in language modeling, the Taybot from Microsoft and whatever else. And so we look at the model and we think, well, how likely is this model to be stable over time? And if the model's likely to be really stable, well, again, you don't need that much data to keep it at this, at this level of accuracy. If the model's unlikely to be stable, you're going to need to keep feeding it good data. Um, and... If you need to keep feeding it good data, where are you going to get that data from? Do you already have that data? Do other people have that data? Um, and this goes into other conceptions of how we value data. But the point, the point I'm making overall is if you think about these three concepts, minimum algorithmic performance, the performance threshold, and the stability threshold, you start with, okay, what are we trying to predict and how? And what data does that require? And then once you know that, then you can value the data you have. Because the data you have is either going to allow you to get to that map and performance threshold and keep the model stable, or it's not. And if it does, it's really valuable. And if it doesn't, it's not. I think the framing of the threshold of data as well as kind of what's the level of algorithmic performance you need to get at is, that, is actually a really interesting framing. Because the way I think about it um, is, especially for startups in, mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, is you know, if you if you look at the landscape of big tech companies, a mm -hmm. Facebook, a Google, and Amazon, you know, there's an enormous uphill battle in competing with big tech, and, and largely yeah. the conversation has been focused around you know cost of talent, um, uh, et, et cetera, operating sophistication, et cetera. But on this thread of AI and data sets, mm -hmm. there's another challenge to overcome in in my mind, which is just the sheer data advantage big tech mm -hmm. has today, and whether that's yeah thresholds of data sets, algorithm performance, stability, et cetera. Now, obviously that doesn't spell the end systematically for startups, but uh, the, the way you kind of answered the last question I thought was interesting, which was actually this nuanced point of, it actually doesn't take that much data in certain mm -hmm. instances to get to the right threshold, right? So what are the characteristics of you know, markets uh, yeah. that, that you think about that are most attractive for startups to enter and compete in, especially with this kind of wave of big tech overhanging? Yeah, this is incredibly important for any entrepreneur or investor to understand and keep tabs on, which is um, you know ha keeping tabs on the behemoths and really understanding what they're what they're doing. They are, and this is another conversation about you know the nature of monopolies changing as the basis of competition changing. But the point is, these are very powerful companies collecting a lot of data. So the first thing I'll say, and this is just our choice; it's not necessarily the right choice, is we stay away from all applications of AI to consumer products um, because we just think that a lot of these big companies are collecting so much data on consumers and not just the big tech companies, but the big legacy data providers like Equifax and LiveRamp Axiom, et cetera. Um, so we just stay away from all of those applications because they're, it's too hard to catch up. Um, or at least if you build a product, then they can probably catch you pretty quickly because they've already got the data to feed that product. So we stay away from that. What we do focus on instead are vertical markets. Now, these are markets that are ostensibly too small um, in sort of uh, 
quotation marks for a lot of these big companies. Uh, so it would be something like um, building a product for uh, the plastics packaging industry to recognize errors on production lines um, in that industry. And, you know, there aren't that, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, but solving a problem for them maybe is like a $100 million software revenue opportunity. And so Google's not going to put a team on that because Google has a lot of capital and a lot of opportunities and it has to deploy capital at a certain in a certain quantum, like it has to deploy a lot of capital at a very high rate because it's got like a great monopoly business it can just keep deploying capital to. So it's not going to deploy capital to and put engineers on solving a problem for the plastics packaging industry. Um, but, you know, we will um, because we think that's a good opportunity. So we focus on markets that others think are probably a bit smaller um, than some of these big consumer markets that they aim to go after. We focus on very specific problems in those markets. So that is... Um, something that you would only discover after having worked in that industry. And then to solve that problem, you have to go and find data sets that are very specific to solving it. So again, using the plastics packaging example, you have to go and find a plastics manufacturer, get a whole bunch of data from their sensors on their production line, and then talk to or have domain expertise or talk to people with domain expertise to understand what they're trying to predict and what they think is going to be predictive, code up those features and whatnot. So you have to work on a, a highly specialized application, ostensibly a small market, um, where getting a specific data set is the only way you'll actually be able to make a prediction, working really closely with those customers, probably providing some services in the beginning, um, you know, not pure software from day one, um, to, get, to get that feedback loop between your system and theirs really tight. Um, and probably um, building a, a, a UI that's specific to that industry. So a UI that someone who's not technical in that industry can use to give you feedback on whether or not your model's working. Um, and then you probably like to get this data on an ongoing basis, have to do a one-off integration with some legacy system that's specific to that industry. So these are all just examples of characteristics that represent um, probably a very niche problem in an industrial or commercial setting uh, that a lot of these big companies are just not going to go after. Like none of those steps are steps that a big tech company would take. They won't focus on small industries. They won't go and spend a lot of time collecting a niche data set. They won't do one-off integrations and they won't do services. Um, but startups can do that in their early days because, you know, they're in an investor sense, their cost of capital calculus is just very different um, and their cost of time calculus is very different. And if they do that for a period of time, they might actually solve this problem and create a really valuable software company. Yeah, actually, all of those characteristics, it's funny, all of those characteristics actually resonate a lot. When, when I graduated from law school, I went out, uh, mm -hmm. I was in San Francisco for a year, I worked at a company called Ravel Law. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, we, were, we were a startup in the legal tech space. We had partnered with Harvard Law School to digitize all of their case law. So that was the data set we were mm -hmm. working on. And then we were using machine learning and NLP to build different types of analytics tools on top. And when we were going out to raise capital, um, a lot of the questions from venture investors was, you know, Google Scholar exists, you know, mm. why, why would the big companies kind of not come into this space? And kind of from some of our connections at Google, et cetera, one of the interesting things we had found was Google had two engineers on Google Scholar and they had stopped yeah. running the project five years earlier, yeah. right? And so, you know, and I, I can kind of say this as a former lawyer, but, you know, servicing law firms is also not a market, you know, these big tech companies are, you know, running after or dying to service. So, you know, having a kind of a quote unquote smaller market, of course, from our perspective, it's a you know, $20 billion market run by two yeah. massive monopolies, right? Uh, but there's an interesting data set. There's an interesting kind of market size there. And then the behemoths in the space um, mm. are actually not, you know, not investing or not funding the project because mm. relatively for their projects, it's a pretty small, it's a pretty small, you know, revenue opportunity. Yeah. Um, and you bring up two things there that are, um, I think, sort of glossed over by a lot of people in the early days of thinking of starting a company. Um, there's been this trend with this, you know, lean startup movement and whatever else to just go straight to building something and getting it out there. Um, and I think that, you know, often it's very good to pause and do something that is not building software. And that is one, do some old fashioned competitive research and gather Intel, you know, gather Intel on 
what is exactly on the AWS product roadmap or what is exactly on the Google product roadmap and what are the other you know, uh, incumbents even closer to our space? Like in your example, LexisNexis, what have they released recently? Can we get in touch with the product manager there? Let's do some old fashioned research and figure out, do we really have uh, a strategy to build a product that no one else is building? Um, a lot of people just sort of skip that part of um, starting a company because they just go straight, they read the Lean Startup and go straight to building stuff. And you can spend so much time, you can spend six months building something and then realize and then have you know a big company release something that you could have known about if you had done the research. So I think that's, I think that's a really valuable thing to do in the early days. Um, and the second thing is, be, you know, in the age of um, it being relatively easy to raise money, it's, it's never easy, but there is a, a fair bit of money out there for good technology projects. A lot of people just sort of default to raising a pretty big amount of money pretty early on. And, you know, what that does is that limits your exit opportunities. Every time you raise money, you set a, a lower, uh, you, you set a valuation bar and you create a liquidation preference stack that you have to clear for you to make money as founders of the company or owners of common stock. And when you're going after these markets that are ostensibly a little bit smaller, you know, you should really think about what is the potential exit opportunity in this market? And therefore, how much should or shouldn't I raise um, to execute on this opportunity in this market? Because, you, you know, smaller markets probably have smaller exits and I mean, you should probably raise less money. Um, so again, I think, I think these are steps that, don't take very long to go through, you know, maybe in the order of hours or days, um, but can actually save you a lot of problems further down the line. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, it, you know, one of the things we kind of thought about a lot in, in the early stages of the company was, was to your first point, which was kind of this idea of, you know, what were Lexus and Westlaw doing and what mm. did they have on their roadmap? And, and the company actually about a year and a half ago got acquired by Lexus. And one of the insights that we had was, you know, both of these players were very, very thoroughly going after legal research and improving mm -hmm. their core product. It was a sticky business. They knew the mm -hmm. buyer, et cetera, but they weren't really foraying into analytics, right? Yeah. They didn't have, they didn't have the technical prowess. It wasn't yeah. exactly right. That, that wasn't interesting. And I think one of the things we actually did well in the early days, which sometimes I see a lot of startup advice these days going contrary to is there's a lot of startup advice, um, you know, especially that comes out of, frankly, out of out of VCs or mm -hmm. or so, which is, you know, you're building a, you know, you're building a legacy business, you're building a 20, 30 year business, you know, you shouldn't be. If I ever ask about, you know, what the exit is, I want to hear that you're thinking about a business for 20 years. And mm -hmm. I think that's, yeah, that's obviously something all entrepreneurs you know, mm -hmm. should strive for, et cetera. But I think one of the things we actually did well in the early days was saying you know, Lexus or Westlaw could be an acquirer for A, B, and C reason, right? What is mm -hmm. the specific thing that they're missing in their stack? And I think mm -hmm. too oftentimes, to your second point, because it's so easy uh, to quickly build these days, especially mm -hmm. with the rise of no-code tools for mm -hmm. non-technical founders, um, jumping in very quickly into a project without that lens of where does this actually fit into the marketplace and how could yeah. this, you know, get acquired and actually kind of move on as a, as a project. Yeah. Um, can that kind of insight or level of thinking can often be missed, which leads to a lot of systematic problems down the line, especially if, you know, you're the, I'd say, you know, 99 out of a hundred that don't turn in to a salesforce.com, right? Yeah. Or to a HubSpot, et cetera. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's a very good thing to do early on. And we, you know, on the investor side, we do it too. You know, we draw up a software stack. Um, you know, we actually sit there and draw these boxes on top of each other. And we look at that stack. So this is the stack of software you need in this industry. And who's building what parts of it? And where are the gaps? Okay, there's a gap there. Let's go and find 20 companies filling that gap. Um, and I think that's a valuable thing for founders to do. And it's the thing, you know, founders can lean on investors to do too. You know, go and speak to a bunch of investors to shortcut your research. Or it's a thing that founders can go and speak to their friends at management consulting firms to do. Um, you know, th these are skills that are sort of, I think undervalued in Silicon Valley, and that is skills of strategic thinking, uh, proper strategic thinking, and a little bit of higher level thinking up front um, can save you a lot of lower level labor down the road. What's the framework, Ash, when you think about, you know, these companies, when you're drawing those boxes, right? Mm -hmm. And you're saying, uh, you know, you're identifying a market opportunity, but then when you're actually looking at an AI first company, mm -hmm. 
what's what's the framework for how these companies get built, right? It feels a little bit different than mm. you know, a normal tech business, right? You're starting with the data set, you're building an engine around it, then you're surrounding it, you know, with more traditional components of a tech business. How, is that right, or how do you, how do you think about kind of the framework for these companies getting built? Yeah, yeah. This is something we started talking about a couple of years ago, which is the the notion of an AI first company and how it differs from a company that's not AI first or just sort of a standard software company. And they really are built differently from day one. So, you know, from day one, instead of being about, um, you know, what can we encode into software? What can we make more efficient um, by building some workflow product? The question you ask on day one is, what prediction can we make is that's really valuable? You know, in this industry, can, you know, what would be, really valuable for someone to have a computer predict with high degrees of accuracy and consistently over time predicting the flight risk of a customer or the default risk of someone or um, the risk of this manufacturing line going down at a crucial time. They're really valuable predictions. And so you start with what can we predict? Um, and then from day one, you start with a bunch of heuristics. You, you come up with heuristics around okay, what is predictive of those things? And so to get those heuristics, you start working with domain experts really early on. And then you start collecting data from day one. Um, so, and that's where you sort of really get into um, what makes or differentiating an AI-first company from one that's not. Um, you're, you, from day one, you don't just have a business strategy and a pricing strategy and a go-to-market strategy, but you have a data strategy. And that is what data, what are we going to do? What are we going to allocate capital and time to, to build a data mode? Um, and that's, that's what you think about from day one as an AI first company that you don't have to think about if you're not an AI first company. And that, et cetera, that's what we help companies do. We help companies do all the usual things, fundraise, price, all that sort of stuff, introduce them to customers. But um, we really focus on data strategy to the point where, you know, a board meeting with us looks very different from a board meeting with perhaps another investor. You know, it includes a whole bunch of slides on um, what data did we acquire this month? What are we spending money on acquiring? What are we spending time on acquiring? How are our machine learning models performing and whatever else? So, you know, not only do you have different strategy from day one, do you allocate time and labor to different things, but you measure different things. You measure the performance of these machine learning models or the efficacy of these machine learning models um, from day one. Uh, your product roadmap looks different. It's not just about adding a whole bunch of features. It's about adding a whole bunch of things that can collect more valuable data for you. Um, and it's not just about product features. It's about machine learning features. You know, we added this feature in the machine learning sense to our model and it increased the predictive accuracy um, this much. Um, so it's a, it's a very different set of priorities um, that you have at an AI first company that you don't have at a non-AI first company. And it sounds like some of those, it sounds like if you don't make some of those considerations at the outset, it actually, mm. it can actually become a lot more difficult to operate down the line. Where, where mm. my mind goes, you know, when you, when you describe kind of an AI first company, well, where mm -hmm. my mind goes is you have to consider things like data rights yeah. right, at, from the outset. Exactly. As opposed to considering them down the line, and mm -hmm. and and I'd love to hear kind of an example of companies that you feel like had to make that shift. Or my mind goes to something you know like mm -hmm. Salesforce, like we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. right? I think Salesforce was very very prudent on you know not looking into your data, et cetera, at the early outset, yeah. which makes total sense in the time frame that the company was founded. You're you're selling a CRM, et cetera, yep. but down the line if you want to have you know AI enabled CRM mm -hmm. applications, like we also talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. that becomes a little bit more challenging, right? Yeah. So give an example or kind of talk about, you know, some of those characteristics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you're going to be an AI-first company, you have to have a data strategy from day one and you have to stick to that strategy. So um, we work with this company called Constructor and what Constructor does is it builds a search box. So you can put this search box on your website. Um, now, there are a lot of search products out there, but most of them, uh, well, all of them as far as I know, are index-based. So it just indexes your all the stuff on your site and you, the search box very quickly goes through that index and finds stuff. Now, they're not machine learning powered, these products, like you know we're used to with Google search, which is machine learning powered. But to make machine learning powered search, you have to see what everyone's searching 
and figure out what they're clicking on and whatever else. Um, so Constructive from day one, you know, it said to its customers, look, if you're going to use our product, you have to be willing to let us see what people are searching on your website. Um, you have to, in a sense, join our customer data coalition because uh, if we see all of the data from all of our customers, we're going to make search better for everyone. And they rejected customers that won't sign up for that um, because they, you know, they're not adding to the data coalition and they're not adding to the, the value of the product for all the other customers at the same time. So if you set your data strategy, you've got to stick to it like they did. Um, you know, other examples are um, different ways to allocate time and money. So we work with this other company that uh, called Tractable that is automating the processing of car insurance claims by building computer vision models that can recognize in an image of a car that's crashed what parts are broken and whether they should be repaired or replaced. Now, to train those computer vision models, they needed hundreds of thousands and now millions of images of crashed cars. Now, so what they did before they really did anything else, before they really invested in sales, before they invested in marketing, before they invested in much software development at all, we invested a year into doing a deal with a company to get that data set. Um, and it was a long and difficult and complicated process to negotiate that deal. And we did that before we did anything else. And so, yes, AI first company um, has to be very conscious of data rights from day one. Um, and in order to sort of build up that valuable data asset to feed the model um, and execute on state strategy. And what are some of the best practices you're seeing um, with respect to how some of these AI first businesses are thinking about you know, data rights, especially in a time, you know, when public sentiment on the topic is is heightened. And I, I thought one of the ones you just pointed out, mm. the kind of concept of a customer coalition was interesting. What are the other mm. ways that you're seeing kind of good, prudent AI-first businesses thinking about data rights? Yeah, so I guess there's the um, the creative part of this and then there's the legal part of this, as in what are some good practices or some creative ways in which companies are acquiring data and getting rights to valuable data? And then you know, what are, how are companies thinking about doing that in a way that is obviously legally sound and reputationally sound in, in an era where a lot of people are starting to be a lot more conscious of the data they're giving away. So on the former, um, there's a multitude of different strategies. You've got companies like Clearbit releasing really cool consumer products like Connect, um, which is a thing that sits in your email and gives you email addresses that you didn't have in your address book. And they use that to collect um, a little bit of data here and there. Um, you've got companies um, building really cheap hardware, companies like Door or Focal Systems, where they, they build these cheap sensors and they deploy them um, throughout in the real world to collect data. Um, you've got companies doing all sorts of cool things, working with governments to um, digitize data sets that haven't been digitized, um, companies building simulation products that generate their own data, um, company 20 billion in Germany um, does this thing called crowd acting where they sort of pay people to act out different scenes and then they use that to train gesture recognition models. There are all sorts of cool um, strategies out there. And indeed, I've just um, finished writing a book that will be published at some point. Um, and half the book is just about all these weird and wonderful days, ways to collect data. Um, so there are lots of different ways people do that. Now, then it becomes a question of, okay, how do you do that prudently? I guess the distinction to make is a lot of the companies, at least we work with, and I think a lot of the companies sort of building, um, a lot of the people building AI-first companies are doing so in a commercial or industrial context. And so they're mostly collecting data from machines and not people. Um, and so they, they don't have to think about a lot of this PII and uh, related issues, um, things to do with GDPR and whatnot, all these other things you're hearing about. Um, so I think that's, that sort of takes it off the table for a lot of companies. Um, that said, you know, you have to be where you are working with data like that. You have to be very careful. Um, and I guess what a lot of companies do uh, is they, they do things like they never actually touch that customer data. They will anonymize and aggregate it at the customer site and then use that anonymized aggregate, aggregated data to feed their, feed their um, intelligence systems or their machine learning models. Um, or they will only ever keep the rights to the models rather than the underlying data. The customer always keeps that data. So there are lots of different ways you can do this, um, but that's generally what you have to do. You have to figure out the right level of abstraction that 
allows you to actually build these models, but also means that you're not going to be liable or at least responsible for any data breaches or um, or anything like that. And also just give the customer comfort that you know you're not going to use their data and give it to a competitor. And so let's say you find that sweet spot, right? You're getting mm -hmm. enough data in. Um, mm -hmm. You've you know you've created a good kind of valuable product for your customers. And then and a flywheel starts to kick off, right? There's mm -hmm. we've you know, we've had lots of conversations in tech around moats. I had mm -hmm. you know, Leo Leo Polovitz from Sousa Ventures on, on the show. We spend the majority of the conversation talking about moats. Um, mm -hmm. and I think you think about moats as an end state goal for a lot of these businesses. But I actually want to talk about a concept that you have, which is uh one step before um a company achieves a moat, which is this mm -hmm. concept of a loop. Mm -hmm. I, explain the concept a little bit more. Um, and then give an example of a business or a use case that you've observed, you know, really hit mm -hmm. a loop. Yeah. So, um, look, moats are, moats are good, but they're static. It's a, it's a static concept. To continue the metaphor, you know, eventually someone will build a big enough bridge to get over your moat. Um, and especially these days where people are just innovating at such a, such a high rate, um, having a static moat is probably not going to be something that, um, allows you to build a truly a business with a truly sustainable competitive advantage. So we think of it more as a loop. Um, so for a competitive advantage to be truly sustainable, it must compound over time and automatically. And um, this is where this loop concept comes in, and we coined it as sort of the virtuous loop back in 2015. And so what that virtuous loop is, is you get data from all the weird and wonderful ways uh, I described before or otherwise. You use that data to build a model, um, or train a model to make a prediction. You give that prediction to your customer, and then they give you feedback on that. Okay, you made a prediction that uh, this is a picture of a car with a broken fender, and that was wrong. So you get the feedback from the customer that that was wrong, and you put that back into your model such that next time it makes a better prediction, it gets it right. Um, and this is the crucial part. The feedback data makes the next prediction more accurate. And so you can think of this as um, a loop, like a feedback loop. You can think of this um, as, a, as a compounding moat, I guess. You can also think of this in, with respect to a network effect uh, in a very traditional sense, like the way uh, Bob Metcalf thought about it when he invented Ethernet. And that is each incremental piece of data makes the network of data that's feeding these machine learning models valuable for the next customer. Um, and so on and so forth. So the more data you get, the more valuable it is, the, the more valuable the data network is for all the customers. Um, so there are a few different ways to think about it. Um, I guess in the real world, uh, there are lots of examples of this, um, but uh, one, one that comes to mind actually is in the language translation industry. So if you think about going to Google Translate, you put a bunch of text in and you say, convert this from Italian to Portuguese, and it'll it'll spit out Portuguese. Now, if you're a speaker of both of those languages and you notice that the way that it translated one of the words or one of the phrases from Italian to Portuguese was wrong and you make that correction in Google Translate, um, at least as far as I know, that doesn't go back and change the language translation model. So it's a um, Google Translate it has a very big moat in that it has a huge corpus of text that it's used to train some translation models that are very good but it's not really getting better because there's only so much text you can acquire and only, you can only make those models so good. There's this company out there called Lilt and uh, L-I-L-T. They did this groundbreaking research at Stanford a while ago and uh, turned it into a company and uh, I invested in that company. Um, and what they do is they built this interface where you put the text in, it spits it out in the other language, put it in Italian, it spits it out in Portuguese. And then if you make a correction to that, it actually uses that correction that you've made to change the way it translates it for the next person that does it or the next time you translate any phrase from Italian to Portuguese. So it takes the feedback data from the user interface, you clicking around and making corrections to improve the model. And so Lilt, you know, it doesn't have the resources of Google. It doesn't have this ability to crawl huge amounts of text all over the web. It's a really expensive thing to do. However, it's been able to build models that are actually better than Google Translate's models um, partially because it gets this feedback data and has this closed loop. We've talked a lot, Ash, about kind of the, the positive sides of AI, and mm -hmm. I, I think this loop concept is, is really interesting. And where my mind kind of goes to from a public policy perspective, and I'd be mm -hmm. curious to hear your thoughts, is 
let's say a company like Lilt, you know, really nails, you know, the loop, um, mm-hmm. the loop phenomenon, right? And, mm-hmm. and other companies nail the loop phenomenon. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you get nervous about, right? We've talked a lot about kind of the optimistic side. What do you get mm-hmm. nervous about <laughs> with AI and, and what will we need to kind of monitor and be prudent about? And when I was at McKinsey, we did, we had an interesting report um, that our global institute uh, completed, which was their perspective on kind of automation and AI was, you know, less than 5% of jobs today would would fully get automated by AI, but something to the tune of over 40% of components of existing jobs can be taken away, right? Mm-hmm. And that obviously has a huge ramification for how labor markets will move, et cetera. So I'm curious kind of, you know, from your perspective, if, if we take the kind of pessimistic perspective or, or mm-hmm. maybe not the pessimistic, but more the risk um, mm-hmm. prudent perspective, how do you think about that equation or what, what worries you or makes you most nervous? Yeah. So I'll answer this in a way which sort of um, goes against the premise of your question, admittedly. And I'm actually most worried about hype. You know, if you think hype mm. as in people getting really scared about AI or on, on the flip side, getting too enthusiastic about it and overpromising and whatever else um, will lead to these sort of boom and bust cycles as in people getting really excited and then getting really pessimistic about it. Um, and those cycles are really unproductive because they prevent long-term investment in AI. They prevent long-term investment by people dedicating their careers to it, by customers um, spending money on these products and supporting these companies as customers, and by investors who invest in the development of these products. You know, I think, you know, pointing to that report you mentioned by McKinsey MGI, um, I think that, yes, a lot of different components of jobs can be automated. But from the ground, let me tell you, it's happening really slowly. Um, It's happening too slowly. As in, there's so much cool stuff that we can do to automate really menial, menial, like very, um, not very valuable tasks. And it's hard. It's, 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 we can see it. We can see it's possible, but it just takes a lot of work and time and investment to do it. And every time there's a boom and bust cycle, that work and time and investment just stops. Um, and so I think it's happening really slowly. And I think the thing to be scared about is hype that interrupts these investment cycles. So that's one thing. Now, you know, answering your question in a completely different way, which sort of fully engages with the question rather than um, challenges the premise of it. Uh, the what. The thing I'm worried about with AI is actually um, just it being weaponized in certain ways. And so I think this is true of any technology, though. Like, you know, it just, and talking about policy, it just depends on how you use it. And I think the way that AI is being used in some parts of the world, it's going to be fairly obvious which part of the world I'm referring to in a minute, um, is, is very concerning because it's being used to gather information on citizens um, which eventually will just is used to control populations. Um, and so, you know, to sort of reframe this, what AI is very good at doing is analyzing really large volumes of structured data and structured data like um, images of people's faces, like uh, things that can go into and out of a credit score, things like that. Uh, and I think governments having control over huge amounts of data and then using AI to process that data to, and this is where the public policy comes in, to make a decision that can actually affect someone's life in a really negative way, like deny them a core government service or put them in jail, that is very concerning to me um, because we've never had that degree of control um, over the data or of, of citizens and therefore over citizens' lives. And um, if you look throughout history, you know, ultimately a lot of dictatorships and sort of tyrannical regimes have been broken up um, because the population just had enough of it. But if you can control a population for long enough um, using some of these methods, you know, these tyrannical regimes and whatnot may enjoy longer lives um, than they would otherwise enjoy. So that's what I'm really worried about. It's, it's how it's used. It's not some inherent quality of it. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because if you look at every sort of technology, there's always the argument of it's kind of fear of the unknown, right? And mm-hmm. so there's always an argument for how you know it could it could lead astray, but there's obviously arguments yeah. for how it could be positive. One of the things I, I'm most worried about, and I'd love to hear your kind of perspective on this, is just this idea of uh, knowing what's true, right? Mm-hmm. It it becomes really really hard 
actually with the amount of noise, the amount of mm-hmm. you know differing incentives to trust what you've historically believed or trusted. I, I think mm-hmm. that for me personally, that's actually the thing that I'm mm-hmm. most nervous about. Yeah. Yeah. And that becomes uh, an issue so to put a point on that with a lot of these new methods that are good at generating data um, synthetically or through a simulation. Um, and there's a, you know, we've seen this with um, all this new stuff, but, um, but also things like, you know, impersonating people, impersonating their likeness, their voice, all that sort of stuff. Uh, that that's that's that could be pretty dangerous if weaponized in the right way. As we round out the conversation, Ash, I want to ask you the you know the kind of famous Peter Thiel question and, and mm-hmm. apply it to AI, which is mm-hmm. what's something about AI that you believe that very few people would agree with you on? Yeah, um, that it doesn't really work in the way most people think it does. I think a lot of people. <laughs> I think a lot of people think AI can do all these amazing things today and it just sort of can't. Um, now, of course, I think it can do a lot of really cool things because I've dedicated my life to building an investment fund that's completely focused on intelligent systems and AI. I think it can do a lot of cool things, but I think uh, it can't really do a lot of the things people think it can do today. Um, so it's a very simple answer to the question. Um, I guess, but uh, yeah, we're, it's moving a lot slower and doing a lot less than a lot of people think. Um, and that's what are, just what, what are the, yeah. What are what are the biggest misconceptions that that you think people have or uh, or that you see that you know that AI definitely can't do today? Oh, it's um, it's the autonomous part of it. I think people think that a lot of these models just sort of run wild and have no human control or whatever else, but in reality. A lot of the models that are at least in production in commercial industrial settings are very closely designed and monitored and tuned by human beings. Um, they're really not running wild. They are, they are for sure automating a lot of stuff. They are doing really amazing large-scale analysis of uh, certain data sets and um, processing information at a rate that we've never been able to process it. But you know, they're doing so with a lot of hand-tuning um, and that's the fun of it for an engineer in the field, by the way, um, because you're you're sort of gradually iterating and improving on something and seeing it get better and better. Um, and that's the fun of it as an investor too. You're seeing these models just add more and more value to the world every day. Um, but it does it's it's a lot of work. It's not just you code something up and let it run wild and then it's just amazing and valuable all of a sudden. Um, I don't think people really appreciate that. But you know, until you're on the ground until you're on the ground day in, day out, working with these things. Yeah, this is this is time for another, it's definitely an, another conversation that we'll have to mm-hmm. have. I wrote a post on this, I think a year or two ago, which was kind of this idea of exploring the trolley problem and saying when you look yeah. at autonomous cars, it's, you know, one of the concerns I think we'll have as a society is actually a very small group of engineers and a very small group of decision makers encoding their morality into products mm-hmm. that we, you know, that we all use. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Ash, this has been an incredibly interesting, insightful conversation. I, I learned a lot, and I'm really glad you, know, you were able to make the time. You know, thanks so much for, for joining us. Really enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you very much, Ramin.